Amen. Be seated. Thank you. Amen. What a lovely song. Well, if you would, open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We're continuing our study in the Sermon on the Mount. And I felt the need to address one more aspect of verses 17 through 20. We've covered a lot. I've had a number of sermons uh, in this text, and if you haven't listened to those, I would invite you to go on our website and go back and listen to those. Uh, But we're going to look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 and through 20. We've been looking through this um, as a a whole. Uh, Today we're going to hone in on verse 19 and 20, uh, and we're going to look today at what Jesus has to say about what our standing is in the kingdom of heaven. So let's read Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 17. The word of the Lord says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we are in desperate need of your grace. God, we need your grace to even understand what you're saying to us. Father, we need your grace to know how to please and honor you. We need your grace to know, God, how, how to be in right relationship with you. So I pray, God, as we uh, look at this remarkable text and the words of our Savior, that you would enlighten our mind, that you would give us understanding. And Father, the words that I speak, Father, for the next few moments would be uh, your words. God, that they would be coming from you and Uh, that they would be nothing more or nothing less. And we pray, God, in the preaching of your word, that Christ would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, as we approach God's law, specifically God's Older Testament law, there are two ditches that we can easily fall into. Uh, The first ditch that you can fall into when you approach the, the Old Testament law of God is called legalism. Legalism in its truest sense is attaining works, attaining righteousness through our works. It's trusting in yourself and seeking to establish your own righteousness through the law. And Jesus sternly rebukes this, uh, rebukes the Pharisees for their legalism. Legalism is used far too often in our society for far too many things. So I wanted to narrow the scope of what true legalism in the Bible uh, means. You know, those who wish to live a holy life that wish to obey God's law as he's prescribed, not add to, but to truly have an earnest heart to seek to, to be holy and to obey God's word, oftentimes can be called legalists. You're just being 
legalistic. That's the Old Testament. But as we've seen, God has established through the Word of God or through His Sermon on the Mount that He did not come to do away with the law, but He came to establish it. Turn with me to Luke chapter 18, and you can sort of see what I'm talking about here when Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for their legalism. Luke chapter 18 and verse 9. And he told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. That is legalism. The Pharisee, what did the Pharisee do? He said, look at what I have done. And the key to legalism is that he was putting his trust in his performance, in his works to obey the law of God. Because there were fasts that were required in the Old Testament. There were tithes that were required in the Old Testament. But this Pharisee put his trust in doing the works and not as the tax collector who put all of his trust in God and God alone. So that's one ditch that we can fall into legalism. And it's and is expounded even more in the book of Romans. Flip over to Romans 9. Romans 9. Look here at verse 30, what the Apostle Paul says under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, What shall we say then? that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, Behold, I lay a Zion, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. So you see here in this text, Paul is laying the, he's uh, indicting the Jews, the Israel, for pursuing a law of righteousness, but they didn't arrive at that righteousness. Why? Because they pursued it by works as opposed to the gentiles they pursued righteousness by faith okay this is the idea that theologians have talked about the inherent righteousness versus the external or as martin luther put it an alien righteousness so this is where legalism takes you and we still see this in many religions and many denominations now is that there's an effort to make you inherently righteous inherently righteous but the reformers understood it that there's nothing we can do we can never make ourselves inherently righteous from the inside we have to have an alien righteousness 
Flip over one more chapter, Romans 10. He goes on to say, Paul, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God is for them, Israel, for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in in accordance with knowledge. Look at verse 3. It says, For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. And here's the key, verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, many people would take that verse and they would misread into that. See, there you go, Mark. See, Christ is the end of the law, right, for those who believe. But in context, do you see what he's talking about there? For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. What righteousness? Paul said it. The righteousness that they were pursuing based upon their works. It wasn't the righteousness of God. They didn't know the righteousness of God that they had to be declared righteous externally or having that alien righteousness. The Christ is the end of the law as right uh, is the end of the law as a means to works righteousness. That's what Paul is speaking about there. See, friends, the law was never meant to use to be used as a way of of works righteousness. That's a misconception. Many Christians believe, you know, the Old Testament, you had to be saved by doing works of the law, and that's how you became saved. The law was never, never intended to be used that way. The Jews, specifically the leaders, the scribes and Pharisees, used the law in that way. You can say they used the law illegally. They used the law in a way that God never prescribed to be used. Now flip to Galatians chapter 2. Paul here argues for the doctrine of justification by faith alone apart from works of the law. He makes a statement that really would send shockwaves through the Jewish church at the time. Galatians 2 in verse 19. Look what Paul says here. Very interesting text. Verse 19 he says, For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. What is, that? What is Paul saying? For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. Paul here is saying that it was when he rightly understood the law itself. Remember, Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He says in Philippians that, that as to the, to the law, he was found blameless. But what he's saying here in Galatians, he's saying that when he rightly understood the law, the Old Testament law, it was that very law that brought him to die to the law of works righteousness. You following In other words, it was the law that taught me to die to the law as a way to try to earn my salvation. And remember, go back to Romans 10.4. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. This was taught throughout the Old Testament, but the Jews missed it. They missed it completely. Psalms 51 in, in David's penitent psalm, In verse 17, he says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, 
A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. 1 Samuel verse, chapter 16, verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Throughout the Old Testament, you see that it was never, the law was never meant to be used as a way to earn righteous standing before God. In the, I would say, one of the most, uh, one of the best scriptures that describes regeneration is Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 25. God says, then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your heart of flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe, observe my ordinances. So here you have God describing regeneration and that, that had to take place so that then they would be careful to walk in his statutes. Not out of a way to earn righteousness, but because of the work that God does in us, we are careful to obey his ordinances. And throughout the Old Testament, the Jews missed the circumcision of the heart. This is found in a number of places. God was using the law as a way to, A, show his holiness, as, B, to show the people from the very beginning that they could not be holy enough for God. The law was to be a tutor to lead them to the Savior, the Messiah, to come. It is to be a tutor to lead us to our Savior, Jesus Christ. So over and over, God is saying to the Israelites, circumcise your heart. It's not the the sacrifices, although I command those, but I would rather have a broken and contrite spirit. Circumcise your heart, he says in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord, he says in Jeremiah 4, 4. Well, in Jesus' day, not only did the Jews used the law as a way to try to earn righteousness, but they also added to the law, laying an even heavier burden on the backs of the people. So the Jews had the law. They were seeking to earn salvation through the law, but then they would put a fence around the law and add all kind of other ordinances that they would say would keep us from even breaking God's law but they would put that burden upon the people's backs. They would add to Scripture, and they would say that if you're breaking these laws, then you're sinning. You know, it's like Jesus rebuked them over and over that you break the commandment of the God for the sake of what? Your tradition. They set up one rule in particular that comes to mind, that if you dedicate all of your money to God, to the temple, to the work of God, then that allowed you to break the fifth commandment and not honor your parents and take care of them when they got to that age where they needed assistance. Matthew chapter 23, verse 13, he rebukes them. He says, But woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven for your people, from the people, for you do not enter it yourselves, 
nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. So there you have one ditch when it comes to approaching the law. And, you know, we don't see that quite often in our day. Some religions are still very much legalistic in that sense. Uh, But that's one ditch that people can fall into when they're approaching uh, the law of God. Uh, You know, last time, a couple weeks ago, uh, we looked at this text and I went through the threefold use of the law of God. Again, if you haven't listened to that, I want to encourage you to do so. What intent did God have for us to use his law? Well, on the other side of the ditch, which is more prevalent in our day, is if you don't have legalism, the pendulum will swing on the other side of the ditch, and then you'll have what's called antinomianism, anti-against law, against the law, or no law, or without the law. And that's where most of, I would say, society and many believers or professing believers fall into that category is without the law. They say, we're not under the law, but we're under grace. Now, I'm not going to spend too much time here defending this because my two or three sermons before uh, showed that Jesus totally obliterates the idea that we are no longer obligated to obey the Older Testament scriptures uh, so far as they have not been directly spoken to and abrogated by the Lord God himself in the New Testament. You understand what I'm saying? Uh, There's an idea that we only look at the commandments in the New Testament that were repeated, but that's never said in Scripture. And so we ought to look at the Old Testament to say, uh, if nothing in the New Testament shows us that we're not obligated, then we need to obey the Word of God. like the sacrificial system. We see that Christ fulfilled it and God completely destroyed that sacrificial system because Christ, it all pointed to Christ. We know we don't have to offer animal sacrifices. Okay, but God's moral law is still intact. It's never gone away. So I've showed you from verses 17 and 18 that God's Older Testament laws are valid, that we can't live autonomously without the law, you know, Jesus even said in John fourteen fifteen, what? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. You will keep my commandments. And in 1 John 5, 2, he says this, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. The next verse, For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And I love this next part. And his commandments are not burdensome. You know, the one that says, oh, the Older Testament laws are such a burden. Like, we're free in Christ. We don't have to worry about, you know, love God and love your neighbor. Those are the two commandments. God says, all the law and the prophets hang on those two commandments. Amen, praise God. But how do we love God? How do we love our neighbor? Where is that contained? In the Older Testament law. It's all there. You got the, you got the law and the prophets. Love God with all your heart. Here's how you do it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Here's how you do it. You know, oftentimes we see, like, I'm free in Christ, right? I don't have to worry about all those laws. I'm free in Christ. I can go do whatever I want to do. Uh, But the apostles, they call themselves slaves of Christ. I'm a slave to obedience, to obey his word. Not because it's a burdensome. It's because I see what Christ has done for me. What else can I do? 
Now, we know we don't obey God's law perfectly, and we never will. But I hope today, brothers and sisters, that your, your perspective of the law of God is not that it's some burden. You know, because the psalmist wrote, How I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. So yes, the law of God, I'm far from obeying it perfectly, as Christ did, and I won't obey it perfectly. God sanctifies us, but our mindset should not be that the law of God is a burden. The Apostle John says otherwise. His commandments are not burdensome. You know, on a side note, in our family worship, we're reading through Matthew, and I believe it's in the 11th chapter, uh, it ends by Jesus saying, Come to me, all who are heavy, heavy burdened and, and wearied, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Well, friends, you know that in context, that's inviting the Jews who have been heavily burdened with legalism, heavily burdened with works righteousness, heavily burdened with trying to earn salvation through works. That's what we come to Christ and we're released from. That's what we come to Christ and he will give you rest if you're trying to earn your way to heaven. It's not come to me so that you can just say a prayer and then just go live however you want. And I said the prayer when I was, you know, so-and-so age or whatever, and I can just, I'm free in Christ. I have no obligation to obey God's word. Uh, there's a spirit of the age, I would say, today that, that we've spoken to, some of you, about how many, so many people claim to be led by the Spirit of God. You know, I'm just led by the Spirit of God. And when that contradicts Scripture, to them it doesn't matter because I have the Holy Spirit. The Word of God doesn't matter. That is absolutely heretical to try to think about because the Holy Spirit wrote the Bible. It would never conflict. It would never conflict. Uh, when we used to minister outside of the abortion clinic, we saw a lot of cars come in there with church stickers on the back of theirs and engaging some of these men and women who were going in to kill their babies. We heard a number of times, and for those who have been doing it for years, they heard it quite often, was they would go, oh, no, God, God already forgave me for all this. I can do whatever I want. Or God doesn't really care about this. God knows my situation. They don't care what the Word of God says. They've been wrongly taught in their churches to have the idea that I'm free in Christ, I'm, I'm led by the Spirit, and it doesn't matter what the Word of God says, but it's an absolute false assumption, false assumption upon the grace of God, but then also totally contradicting what Scripture says itself. Well, that was sort of the foundation, and let's get to our text. Our text today, actually, <clears throat> it addresses both of these ditches. It addresses both of these ditches while at the same time it reveals to us that we need to have the right mindset towards the law of God. As a matter of fact, today's text will actually tell us where we stand in the kingdom of God, either greatest, least, or not even in the kingdom of God. And I'll show you what I mean here in a minute. So I briefly reviewed, but again, if you haven't listened to those sermons, please go back because it kind of sets us up where we are today uh, because we established that the law of God is valid, it's perpetual, and we looked at the threefold use of the law, that it preserves, the law of God restrains us from our sin, it points us to Christ, number two, and it purifies those that are in Christ, it sanctifies us. Those are the threefold use of the Older Testament's 
law of God. So let's look at verse 19 and 20 today. Jesus in these verses doubles down on establishing the law of God and reveals to us our attitude towards the law reflects our standing in the kingdom of heaven. Our attitude towards the law of God is in direct correlation to how we stand in the kingdom of God. It shows us who's greatest, who's least, or who's not even in the kingdom, all based upon our relationship with the law of God. So we would do very well to pay attention to the words of Christ here. So verse 19 starts out by saying, whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. The first thing to note there is the transitional phrase, whoever then. Then in the original Greek means therefore or accordingly or consequently or these things being so. So this ties together with what Jesus just said in verses 17 and 18. So he's saying, because I came not to abolish the law, but to establish the law, those things being true, now whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments. Which proves the point that what, God is, what Jesus is talking about here in the law of God are the commandments of, law, of the law of God. It would make no sense to say, oh God, he's not talking about the commandments. He's just talking about, you know, the sacrificial system. He fulfilled it. We don't have to do it. Well, then why would he say whoever annuls the least of these commandments? He's talking about the commandments in the Old Testament. And then there's an interesting word that says annuls. So because of all things, because I came to establish the law of God, now whoever even annuls one of the least of these commandments. These, what's the these? It's the commandments that he's saying in the law that he came not to abolish. The word annul, or your version in the King James and New King James says break. I don't like the rendering of ESV, so if you have the ESV, one less point for them, because it says relax. That doesn't give the idea of what the original Greek word says. I don't believe that's a good translation. I don't think that's a bad translation as a whole. Sometimes the NAS, what I use, I think doesn't quite get it uh, better than the other versions, but... Uh, Because the word annul literally means to break up, to destroy, or to dissolve, to loose, to put off. Whoever puts off, destroys, dissolve, even the least of these commandments shall be called, what's it say? Least in the kingdom of heaven. Now it's important to note here in verse 19, These people are in the kingdom of heaven. These are people who are saved, okay? These are people who are saved. So I think you can be deceived, you can be led astray to think that some of the Old Testament does not apply when it really does. He's not saying you're not part of the kingdom. He's just saying you'll be least in the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you remember the whole start of the Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes, Jesus describes who Christian is. 
Who is in the kingdom of heaven? The term kingdom of heaven is used a number of times in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. So now he's saying whoever annuls or breaks even the least of these, although they might be in the kingdom, they're going to be in the least, called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But, he says, whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So in one sense, somebody who is saved, who is truly misled uh, to annul even the least of these commandments or teach others to do so, they might be saved, but they're going to be called the least in the kingdom of God. Now, I don't know about you, brothers and sisters, but I, I don't want to be called least in the kingdom of heaven. You know, I would, and now, it's not a prideful thing, but I think there's a reason why Jesus is saying this, right? He's saying my law is important. My law should be taken seriously. I did not come to abolish it, but to establish it. The Apostle Paul says the same thing. Do we nullify the law because of grace? Absolutely not. We establish the law. So on the flip side, he says, those who keeps and teaches the Older Testament law shall be called great. The word keeps means to make. It's just a simple word. Whoever does them, that's really what it says. Whoever does these things and teaches these things will be called great in the kingdom of God. Now, brothers and sisters, before we think, oh, yeah, 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 I believe in the law of God. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm teaching them. I must be great in the kingdom. The verse says, whoever keeps them. You keep the law pretty, pretty good. I mean, I know I don't. I know every day when I'm studying the Ten Commandments or Proverbs, which really expounds upon uh, the second table of the law and, and how that practically works out. I mean, I'm constantly convicted, like, wow, I'm falling short there. And just as soon as you think you've got it in one area, then God works through his word and the Holy Spirit to show, wow, I, I'm totally missing that boat in that area. And then when you think you've got it all together, you just rub the wrong way from a friend, a spouse, a coworker, and then you feel the ugliness come out in your heart. Yeah, we don't keep the law very well, do we? So I'll be the first to confess that I don't keep God's law as intended, but that should be our goal. Jesus kept the law perfectly, and Jesus taught the law perfectly. He's obviously the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, but that should be what we aspire to do. We should aspire to keep the law as Christ did. We should aspire to teach the law as Christ did. In Psalm 51, when David repents of his sin, part of that repentance is then renew in me a clean heart, O God, then I will teach transgressors your way. We should have that desire that when God uh, brings repentance in our lives, that we should want to teach the law of God to others so that God can use it to work repentance and cleansing in them. Now, as a side note, this text does show us that there are rewards in heaven for what we do. Now, I don't want to go into that too much, uh, but he wouldn't have said that. Someone's called the least versus the greatest. So I do believe there are rewards in heaven for those who are faithful. Now, how did all that work? Because it's all of grace. When we do anything for God, it's God's grace working in us. I don't know how all that works. All I do know is that there are rewards in heaven and for us, it should be to honor Christ and to work hard to do the things that we've called us to do. 
So friends, to sum up verse 19, as a believer, our attitude towards the law of God will determine our standing in the kingdom of heaven. So it follows with a question, what is your attitude towards the Old Testament law of God? Even the Old Testament narratives, which shows God's law working in his people on display, the failures, the successes, what is your, what is your mindset towards the Old Testament law of God? <clears throat> Do we need some self-evaluation there to change our heart and ask God to change our hearts so that we would look to his law as the psalmist did, as Jesus did? How wonderful is thy law, O Lord. Let's look at verse 20. Verse 20 says, For I say to you, unless your Pharisees, unless, unless your Pharisees, for unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, right after this, Jesus then goes into correcting their misinterpretation of the law. And for many, you might read that and say, This seems like a little out of place here. But I want to show you how it not only fits Jesus' line of teaching, but it's also a way of introduction and transition into the rest of chapter 5, where Jesus corrects the Pharisees' misuse of the law itself and how he corrects their approach to the law as a way of, mean, of means of works righteousness. Verse 20 starts out with that word for. This is another conjunction connecting with what he just said with what he's about to say. Now, when he says, your righteousness must surpass the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. What righteousness did the scribes and Pharisees have? They must have had some righteousness because he says, unless your righteousness surpasses theirs, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, you have to put yourself in the cultural context, okay? For us, like we can see how the Pharisees missed it. We can see Pharisees bad, Jesus good, right? But in that context, who Jesus is talking to, this would have been a shocking statement for Jesus to tell them that they had to be more righteous than the Pharisees. From the people's perspective, the scribes who interpreted the law and the Pharisees were the most righteous in society. You could not get more righteous to them than the scribes or the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the religious leaders. Who could be more righteous than them, Jesus? We have absolutely no hope. But what is Jesus saying here? Is he saying that, is he telling them that you have to truly inherently be more righteous than the Pharisees? Paul even said himself in Philippians 3, describing himself as a Pharisee, he said in verse 6, as to righteousness which is in the law found blameless. How could Paul make such a statement about his former life before Christ as a Pharisee as to the righteousness in the law I was found blameless? How could he say such a statement? And how can one think to be more righteous than somebody like that? Well, what if perhaps the Pharisees' righteousness, which is found in the law, is no righteousness at all? 
What if the scribes and Pharisees, as I mentioned before, used the law unlawfully? And therefore, the Pharisaical view of the law must be completely abandoned. You see, the scribes and Pharisees, their view of the law is what kept them out of the kingdom of God because they sought to use the law as their own means to righteousness. Remember Romans 10.4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The law as a means for justification is what theologians refer to the covenant of works. This is the covenant that was given to Adam in the garden. Adam, do this, you live. Don't do this, you die. And we know what happened. They disobeyed and they spiritually died and would eventually physically die. So in a sense, all of mankind is born under the covenant of works. Why? Because the law demands each person to be perfect and perfectly obedient to God in order to be righteous, in order to live. But we know that that cannot happen. The law demands perfection. You must be perfectly obedient to be righteous enough to go to heaven. And this is what leads us to the covenant of grace. This is what leads us to Christ. Because you and I, friends, believers, are no longer under the covenant of works. This is the beauty of the gospel. We are under the covenant of grace. God chose to bestow his love upon us, to take us out of darkness into his marvelous light. The law of God and the grace of the gospel are not contrary to one another. We got to understand that. The law of God and the grace of the gospel are not contrary to one another, but they are in sweet harmony. It states it this way in our confession of faith in chapter 19, paragraph 7. Speaking of the law of God, after it goes through the uses of the law of God, it says this, Neither are the aforementioned uses of the law contrary to the grace of the gospel, but do sweetly comply with it. The Spirit of Christ subduing and enabling the will of man to do that freely and cheerfully which the will of God revealed in the law requires to be done. So when Jesus tells the Pharisees that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven, That word in the original language, surpasses, means to be over and above beyond. It could be really meant in one of two ways. If you're seeking to inherit the kingdom of God through your works, through trying to inherit your own righteousness, you have to be better than the best of you. Which to them should be a crushing blow. I I can't do it. Or another way to look at it is that that the righteousness that they're seeking is not the righteousness of God. It's not the righteousness that comes from God. They're seeking to establish their own righteousness. And unless your righteousness is over and above and beyond that, meaning it's got to come from someone else. It's got to come from God. 
on the basis of faith. He says, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, friends, this ties back to the law of God. Because the Pharisees and the scribes were using the law wrongly. They had the wrong mindset to the law of God. They were not in the kingdom of heaven. So that's why it's so important our mindset determines our standing in the kingdom of heaven. So I want to ask you again, what is your mindset towards the law of God? See, for the average unbeliever in our day, there's less of the the legalism, uh, but it's more of uh, autonomous living. It's I don't need the law of God. Uh, If there is a heaven, I do enough good that I'll, I'll hopefully be there one day. But friends, that's the same pharisaical mindset is there is a standard. I do good enough works. I'll be good enough. That's the same mindset of the Pharisees. Uh, And that's the wrong mindset towards the law of God. There is a standard of righteousness, and it's found in God's law. If you're in Christ today, you're you're a born-again believer Uh, I want to end just by asking you again, what is your mindset towards the law of God? Uh, Do you seek to obey the law of God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength? Do you seek to know parts of Scripture because, well, that doesn't fit with what I'm doing? Do you make excuses for things you do where you know there are clear commands in God's Word that speaks against that? What is your mindset towards the law of God? Well, in conclusion, brothers and sisters, we can rejoice for a number of reasons. One reason why we can rejoice is because we can never keep the law of God perfectly as the law demands. But Christ came on our behalf and he obeyed the law of God perfectly all throughout his life. And he had the right mindset towards the law of God. He obeyed it so that you and I through faith in Christ, can inherit eternal life. So I want to ask you, if you've had the wrong mindset towards the law of God, now is the time to repent of that. Uh, If you're not in Christ, if you think you're in Christ, I would ask yourself that question. Do I have a heart to submit to God's word? That's one of the fruits of salvation is even though you might not obey God's word perfectly, friends, if you don't have a heart to submit to God's word, come what may, another way to say this is, a: do you have a universal obedience to the word of God? This is a good way. The Bible says to examine yourselves to make sure you're in the faith. This is one of the ways you examine yourself. Do you have a universal obedience, submission to the word? What what do I mean by universal? I mean this. Do you have a heart that says, God, every area of my life, I submit to you? Now, it may not be perfect, but are there areas of your life where you failed to submit to the law of God? of God. That should be a warning to you. That might be a warning to you. You might be in Christ and you might feel convicted now. There's an area of your life that you've not been submitted, but now you have a heart to do it. Repent. 
But friends, if there's things you know that are happening, that, that areas of your life where you know, you know what God's word says, but you don't have a desire to submit to him, there's a problem. Children, I'm talking to you as well. If there's areas of your life, young, youngest to oldest, this is one of the ways we evaluate ourselves. Repent, come to Christ. If you're in Christ, repent and keep repenting. And when you fall again, repent again, flee to Christ. He'll wash you, he'll cleanse you. But we have to have the right mindset when it comes to the law of God. It is vital in our walk with Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so very much, Lord, for your word. God, may we have a heart that seeks universal obedience to your word. And so, Father, when we come across portions of your word that conflicts with our lifestyle, that conflicts with areas of our life, Lord, may you use it to shine a light on those who are not in Christ. Those that are in Christ, may you use it, God, to conform us to your image, that we would repent and that we would seek to submit to your word, although imperfectly, God. But Lord, we thank you, Father, for our Savior, Jesus Christ, who obeyed the law perfectly. And through faith, Lord, you have declared us righteous based upon the righteousness of Christ. What great mercy, what what great grace you have shown towards your people. Father, help us to walk in obedience out of love for you and not as the Pharisees did out out of mere duty and way to earn righteousness. But God, may the gospel, may the good news of your Son be the engine and the fuel to flan our flames to walk in holiness and obedience to your word. Lord, I pray if there are any here today or listening over the airwaves, God, that you would, if any, God, or aren't in Christ, Lord, from the youngest to the oldest, God, I pray that you would use your law. Use the law, God, to impress upon their hearts, to shine a mirror upon them, Father, that it would break them, Lord, that it would weigh them down in such a way that, Father, it would cause them to repent and call out to you and that you would save them by your grace, Lord. We thank you, Father, for the opportunity to gather together to worship you, our King of kings and Lord of lords. May you be honored. Father, may you be exalted in each of our lives. And as we walk forward this week, Father, We pray, God, that you would lead us and guide us by your word.